John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1087.ez1613 certificate number 25284 rubber barons do you know who makes more tires than any other company in the world john have you heard this before bf goodrich this company makes 380 million tires a year. That's 50% more than Michelin or Goodrich or Dunlop or anybody. Who is it? Lego. Come on. They're tires. For their little toys? Yeah, they make, I mean, they make 380 million. They don't use as much rubber as, oh, I see. as uh, Michelin or Goodyear, but... They're tiny, tiny, tiny tires. They make 380 million tiny little tires. <laughs> They're the biggest tire manufacturer on earth. Huh. Interesting. But tires, tire manufacturer changed the history of the world. And in particular, it changed these previously tiny little villages in the Amazon rainforest, which for 30 years or so became the richest places on the planet. That's right. There, but prior to the invention of the automobile, wheels were mostly wood or were rigid, right? There, I mean, what was when did the first rubber, inflatable, soft, bouncy tire come around. Yeah, age of the automobile. Like for years, we knew about rubber, but it was a, it was a novelty. I mean, ancient Mesoamericans used rubber. The Olmecs, well, we don't know what they were actually called. We don't know what the Olmec language was. Like we call them Olmecs because that's what the Aztecs called them. And that just means rubber people. <laughs> really? They were, as far <laughs> as we know, the Olmecs were not made out of rubber. <laughs> but they were famous within uh, Mesoamerica as the people that had access to rubber. Yeah. Like in some of those giant heads, you, you know, the giant Olmec heads. Yeah. Like I think the Simpsons have one in their basement. The heads are actually wearing helmets. And it's because they played the sport that we call, uh, today we call it pocket talk, but it was this Mesoamerican volleyball, racquetball type thing that yeah, they would play. You, you bounced a hard rubber ball off your chest? Yeah, like you'd bounce it off your hips or whatever. It was... Um, you couldn't touch it with your hand. Right. I, th I think that's... We, we, were, we were sort of speculating on what the rules were, but yeah, it was a 10-pound solid rubber ball <laughs> that they would make with latex from rubber trees. Ouch. And this was a hugely important part of their culture. But it, this um, was also a, a sport in Aztecia. Yeah. Uh, this, this stayed popular for thousands of years. So I guess it's possible we are talking to future people who play some variant of golf or uh, basketball or scattergories with human sacrifices. 
and have no idea that it, it derived from something we used to do back in our day. Now, were the does Aztec mean the chocolate people? Is that how is that how tribes got their names? So when you say chocolate people, do you believe that the Aztecs are made of of chocolate? Like the Olmecs were big Stretch Armstrong guys, or made no? Of but like that would have been. Definitely an introduction when you met when a body met a body coming through the rye. Oh right, you're from over there. You guys oh, are those chocolate yeah, people. You're the chocolate ones. You're, oh, you guys are the rubber ones. You're thinking of the Oompa Loompas, <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, Aztec actually means people from Aztlan. Like it, it just means oh. we're the people who came from there. Basically, right. that, I think that was their name for themselves. But that sport it was big in Mayan culture. I've seen right. the courts. Yeah, and I think the Aztecs actually incorporated human sacrifice. So the Into game, the game, the game always ended with the losing somebody getting the losing team either getting beheaded or uh, a previously chosen sacrifice being killed at halftime. It's kind of like what Vince McMahon did in the XFL, if you remember. <laughs> if you remember when he used to sacrifice Division Two A athletes <laughs> after every game, it was a good time. But so these rubber balls had a lot of value, or I mean, that, that was did they use rubber in other ways other? than for this I think we have evidence that they would uh, you know it's a wet climate I think we have evidence that they would waterproof their clothing oh and when rubber did become known in the west in Europe it was thought of as a novelty like a Mr. McIntosh invented raincoats by you know soaking cloth in latex that he imported from South America but it wasn't big business in um in 1770 the scientist Joseph Priestley same guy credited with discovering oxygen he pretty important discovery. Good job. Nobody, <laughs> nobody breathed until 1770. So thank you very much, Joseph. Uh, he accidentally um, marked a piece of paper with a bit of uh, sort of sticky rubber he had been playing with. You know, it was it was just like a souvenir from a different part of the world. Like uh-huh. you might have a an exotic seashell or something. some weird sap. That, exactly. Yeah. Got to have some weird sap on your desk. And he accidentally rubbed it on a piece of paper and the pencil came up. And he was the one who coined the word rubber because he realized if you rubbed stuff with it, it was an eraser. Wow. So yeah, the same guy discovered oxygen and the eraser. Anytime you breathe or make a mistake, you can thank Joseph Priestley. Hmm. But it wasn't, it didn't become a staple of industry because it was not the kind of tough, durable rubber we imagine today. It was, it was a sticky bit of tree gum. Mm-hmm. It would be like somebody having a piece of maple sap on their desk and accidentally having it fall on a pancake and discovering maple syrup. Like, you know, there was no multi-billion dollar market for it. And rubber is a, is a substance kind of like water in that, depending on its temperature, like at room temperature, it's sort of sticky, but holds together. If you heat it up a little bit, it becomes kind of viscous. And if you cool it down just a little bit, it becomes like rigid and hard. Yeah. And the game changer was vulcanization. In 1839, several people, including... Charles Goodyear in the United States discovered that you can heat this kind of viscous sticky rubber with sulfur and it suddenly becomes very durable. Oh. And that made people excited because the Industrial Revolution was underway. And when people had parts of um, machinery that needed to expand or contract or needed to be, you know, muffled in some kind of way, you know what they would use? They would use leather because they didn't have rubber hoses and gaskets and seals. So all these machines had layers of leather on them, huh. which you can imagine is not the ideal material for that. Right. So Charles Goodyear discovering how to vulcanize rubber into something hard and durable suddenly created a market for it. Um, You could make machine parts out of it. You could make gloves and shoe soles. And especially you could make pneumatic tires, which were being put on the first automobiles. And so suddenly these places where rubber trees had grown for thousands of years were the most economically important part of the world. And were they 
limited to a certain geographical area for some reason? Yeah, at the time, these trees grew only in the Amazon rainforest, some of the hardest land on earth to get to. Hmm. So all these little Amazon river towns, you know, uh, Manaus in Brazil and Iquitos in Peru. Iquitos is located um, at the very headwaters of the Amazon, you know, where it, where it first falls down out of the Andes. Uh, these were tiny little places, um, you know, just a, maybe a, a trading post and maybe some Catholic missionaries. I think Iquitos was founded as a Jesuit mission. Iquitos had 300 people in 1860 before the world discovered rubber trees. And 20 years later, it had 20,000 people. Whoa. And not just any people. It was a bustling and affluent metropolis. Well, sure. It's like it's a gold rush town. And we've seen in the north. North America, the gold rush towns. I mean, San Francisco's one, right? It was a gold rush town, except the gold in this case is, it's not gold or black gold. It's, I don't know, what do you call mm. it? Sprungy gold. Yeah, sprungy gold. That's right. Uh, uh, sticky gold. Amazon tea. <laughs> um, because it came from the trees. So Manaus, within 20 years, became this futuristic science fiction utopia in the middle of the jungle that had electricity and streetlights and sewers and piped gas and telephones and miles of electric trolley. And this is a time when like plenty of Latin American capital cities did not have that. Right. And here's this little jungle town that has all the modern amenities and it's because of all this money pouring in. It's the Butte, Montana of the Amazon rainforest. Right. And all the merchants that got to the routes first have incredible mansions with tiles that have been brought in from Seville and they go around town with their bejeweled mistresses lighting cigars with $100 bills. Uh, there's a amazing stories about the things these people would do. Um, apparently, people in Manaus and Belém would sometimes send their laundry to Europe every week, to, to Paris every week to be washed, because they didn't <laughs> like the grimy water of the, of the Rio Negro or whatever. Wow. Um, that's, uh, that's pretty decadent. Right. You that's know, that's I, something you do just to show off, right? I admire a little bit of decadence, but... Uh, it would seem like you'd need 50 separate changes of clothes to be in rotation because it would just take that long to get to Paris and back. Sure. It's going to take, what, a month to get there and a month back? Yeah, so you need eight separate full wardrobes, <laughs> which they could keep in their imported sure. teak rooms full of closets. What Was the harvesting of rubber somehow mechanized or industrialized at this time, or was it still people like people getting maple syrup in Vermont, was it just a bunch of folks out there with buckets? It's essentially folks out there with, in this case, baskets, I think, woven baskets. You can't really grow uh, rubber trees as plantations in hmm. the Brazilian rainforest because uh, if they're too close together, there's all kinds of fungi, South American leaf blight. Something will kill your trees if they're too close together. So in fact, in the jungle, you'll you'll tend to find a rubber tree about one per acre. What? Really? So it's incredibly inefficient. You can't even go out to a stand of rubber trees. So it's something where uh, they really are prospectors. You would have to know a population of people that understood the jungle and they would go out and they knew where the trees were. These were indigenous people who largely built all this incredible wealth on their back and boy, did they ever pay for it. There's multiple kinds of trees, different genera of trees in the Amazon that produce latex. There are the Hevea trees, which produce the highest quality latex. This is the stuff you want. And these you can tap. You can take a little hatchet and knock the, the, the bark and set a basket there. 
and move on to the next one. And so, and this kind of latex was called syringa. So you'd have these guys called seringueros that are essentially poor tenant farmers. They've bought seed money for this from one of these Manaus bajillionaires to get access to a little tract of land and the equipment. They have a little hut with a garden. And yeah, they're, they're sharecroppers. Every day they walk a, a path through the jungle that only they know, passing 300 of these trees, um, you know, knocking the, the bark if it's run dry and swapping out baskets if the basket's full. Then they take the latex back to the fire and they kind of spin a ball of latex over heat. Uh, like on a rotisserie, kind of like a, it's Euro meat or something. Uh, yeah, or, or, it's, it's, uh, it's or saltwater taffy. Sure, yeah, it's it's saltwater taffy or donor kebab or something. And that kind of hardens it up into a into a durable ball of rubber that can be taken down the river and sold. And do you know, did rubber trees produce latex so uh, much that you could that you could harvest it every day or was it a, a route that you kind of took once a month? In case of these trees, I think uh, the rubber could flow pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like Vermont where you can just go to your maple trees in February. Right. But there, were an there was another kind of tree, the Castelloa genus produced a lower quality latex called caucho. Oh, the famous caucho latex. These could be um, accessed all year round. Havea trees generally grew in the lower parts of the jungle, which would flood during the wet season. Uh -huh. So you'd only have access to those for part of the year. The Castelloa trees, you could um, get latex from year round, but they're more like a, a bumblebee than a wasp. Basically, it kills the tree. Oh, wow. To extract. You know how when a bee stings you, it's dead? Do I ever? <laughs> well, the Castelloa trees are the bumblebee of the latex family because uh, it, it kills the tree huh. to extract the latex from the bark. And are they fast growing? Could you replant them? They probably would grow pretty fast, but not fast enough. I mean, to these people, the jungle was inexhaustible. It's the story we talk about in the omnibus all the time. Right. You know, these people thought the earth would always have enough. And that must just be painful to you in the future where there's <laughs> not, not hardly any of anything and you're just scraping by. But there was a time where we thought it was going to last forever. Yeah, friends. well, I'm sure that uh, futurelings have synthesized rubber out of corn because corn has become the only crop that's grown anywhere in the world. You think there's just corn everywhere? Corn provides. Corn is the great provider. Well, it's good for the scarecrow industry. <laughs> I assume big scarecrow runs the future. Uh, well, e and that probably futurelings are giant crows. <laughs> They're their own scarecrows. Evolution has produced futurelings that will just look like the scariest thing to a crow. Um, so caucho trees, you had, to, you had to kill. So these were harvested by caucheros mm -hmm. who were even lower on the pecking order because these people just had to wander through the jungle with a machete and a torch, hoping to find a castelloa tree. And when they did, they could make these deep incisions in the bark, put down a basket. It would, it would essentially bleed out, and that would kill the tree, and they'd move on to the next one. It was lower-quality latex, but you could do it year-round. Hmm. And this was really hard on the Indians in the area who you know, bore the brunt of this. Um, you know, In just the first decade of the boom, of the Putumayo Indians who were the hardest hit, like 30,000 of them were enslaved and most ended up tortured and murdered in order to produce rubber more efficiently. Oh, sure. Everybody knows that the best rubber comes from people who have been tortured and murdered. I, yeah, I don't know where that thought process comes from. <laughs> Is if, it, if, I don't, if I don't torture and murder literally 70% of these people, the others are just going to 
they're just going to start bringing in buckets that are baskets that are a little less full. Yeah, know? they're going to try. They're going to try and fool us with uh, latex that's been augmented with bourbon or whatever it is. In a shocking twist, these billionaires lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills literally did not care. <laughs> I mean, as late as the nineteen sixties, these guys would fly in in small planes and just drop dynamite on villages if the if the Indians would not play ball. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout Uh, just to clarify is latex a kind of thing like cacao that ends up needing to be refined into rubber or are latex and rubber different things? Yeah, it's essentially analogous to cacao turning into chocolate. Latex is a goo. It, you know, it's, I think it's a, like a suspension in a liquid that has to be processed to make rubber we want anything to do with. It doesn't come out of the tree looking like a, a pink pearl eraser. Although there are a lot of things now made out of latex, which is, a, is it a less refined kind of rubber or is it, Sure. A a purer rubber. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, vulcanization makes a very tough, leathery substance, which is what you want on a car tire. Right. You do not want a car tire to feel like uh, a surgeon's glove. But we do have lots of things. Well, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to say surgeon's glove. I had a less delicate example in mind, but... You know, I don't know what the sensibilities or the or the uh, reproductive organs of our listeners look like. So, right. um, so surgeons' gloves, uh, balloons, you know, things like that, where you need the stretchiness, might be made out of non-vulcanized rubber. And yet, latex coming out of a tree is in a liquid form, whereas latex that we use in a balloon or in gloves has somehow become both stretchy and also is a solid. Let's call it. Yeah, it must it must dry out. Just maybe that first heating that they do, you know, spinning it over a fire is uh-huh. what turns it into a solid that's still latex, uh-huh. but easier to to transport, I guess. So these places turned into uh, incredible money towns. More diamonds sold there per month than anywhere else on earth. Andrew Carnegie was reputed to have taken one look and said, "I should have chosen rubber." You know, he realized he was rather a, than oil. Right, he was a piker compared to these guys <laughs> with his old money oil. But now doesn't that mean that rubber would be, I mean, rubber is a commodity, right? So it has a market, which means it goes, the price goes up and down. You can't have a gold rush forever. That is true. There was no gold rush forever. Um, Two things happened to cause the decline. In 1930, DuPont invents neoprene, for example, the first synthetic rubber. Hmm. And the 20th century was a a succession of uh, inventions of better and cheaper synthetic substitutes for rubber. They're not perfect though. Tires today still have plenty of natural rubber in them, but we can supplement with synthetic rubbers. But what really happened, the sort of the red letter day for the, the, the end of the boom 
1874, and it was uh, the fault of a man named Henry Wickham. He was one of these middle-class British guys who made his fortune by wandering into the jungles and then writing... Some kind of journalistic expose or he, adventure story. Yeah, publishing his adventure story, his journal of the strange tribes he met and the amazing butterflies he collected. There was a whole industry of these people. It was kind of the end of the boom of exploration. Was wandering the Amazon looking for the last cities of gold or whatever. Yeah, uh, Livingston, I presume. Exactly. And he was one of these guys, just some solicitor's son from outside, from Hampstead outside of London. But he's not a rule follower. You'll like him, John. Oh, boy, a rebel, huh? I feel like you you despise rule followers <laughs> like me. Eldest, firstborn children like me. Is he a rebel just for kicks now? He is not a rebel just for kicks. He did very well by his rebellion. He uh, obtained an export license to bring rubber seeds or to bring botanical material out of Brazil for research purposes. Oh. And Brazil, as you might imagine, was keeping a pretty close eye on its rubber seeds. They wanted to make sure they kept their monopoly up. Sure, but how do you keep a guy from grabbing some rubber seeds and sneaking them out in his pockets? He did not grab just a few. He, with his export license in hand, telling them he was, you know, just going to study them in a lab somewhere, he took 70,000 rubber seeds Whoa. from the Amazon basin returned them to Kew Gardens in outside London, which you can still visit today, these giant Victorian hothouses where you can see banana plants and coffee plants and stuff in, right. in the, the Queen's Arboretum, uh, and tried to plant them. And they eventually got 2,400 of them to sprout. They figured out how to do it. In the United Kingdom? In, in a, in a hothouse hot outside, outside London, oh. at Kew. And they realized, you know, at the time, there was no shortage of tropical forest in the British Empire. Right, all of Africa and, and Asia. Southeast Asia, Singapore, India, Malaya. And so what they did was they sent these saplings out to Southeast Asia, planted massive plant, you know, slashed and burned just millions of acres of, of virgin rainforest and planted rubber plantations. Is this British East India Company or is it some other enterprise? The British East India Company actually went defunct in 1874, the same year that Wickham did his great seed heist. Aha, they just missed it. Isn't it great to imagine <laughs> him with like 10 Confederates? You know, one of them is shutting down the electronic eyes and uh, somebody else is a beautiful woman distracting the guards. Yeah, the great seed heist of 1874. So this was actually a British government agency he was dealing with. This, this was the, the India office or, or whatever that was. Right. Trying to get the local economy booming. The Raj. Yes. It was the Raj. And it worked great. You know, within a few years, because uh, there was no South American leaf blight. Oh, so they could, in the use, they could plant them in rows. They in could plantations. plant endless rows of rubber trees as far as the eye could see and, you know, care for them much more efficiently than some guy with his reed basket wandering through the woods, whistling a, a cheery Peruvian uh, uh, folk song. And they wouldn't possibly have the Simon and Garfunkel one. They wouldn't have uh, yearly floods, so they could use them year round. So this is an example of kind of an invasive species that actually works against type in that moving it somewhere else, it, it now works better and is protected from its predators. It does great for the car industry, but you know, remember the invasive species always booms, John, you know, right, <laughs> you don't right. have to feel bad for the zebra muscle. He's doing great. Yeah. But is the rubber tree like displacing native flora and fauna? I guess it's a slash and burn technique. Sure. Yeah. This is, this was virgin rainforest probably with, you know, thousands of unique species and that habitat to this day is still being encroached by people growing rubber and harvesting valuable hardwoods. So oh. this is an 
This is an ongoing issue. But yeah, by 1910, there were 50 million rubber trees growing in Southeast Asia. And that was ball game for these boom towns oh, they, on the they Amazon. They snookered the Brazilians and the Peruvians. And think about it, like just, just a decade earlier, Manaus had built, uh, uh, Manaus was the Paris de Tropique, you know, uh-huh. the, the Paris of the tropics. They had built an opera house with four levels of Corinthian columns with all this beautiful imported materials. They had brought white Carrara marble from Italy and wrought iron and porcelain from England. The thing had 19 chandeliers. The only local stuff was the rubber that they put on the cobblestones outside the opera house. Huh. So that when, if somebody arrived late in their coach. They, they could arrive quietly. Yeah, they wouldn't clatter and, and interrupt Don Giovanni or whatever. <laughs> they booked Caruso to open the place. This, this little tiny town that had barely existed 10 years before. I wonder what the travel was like up the river. I mean, it sounds like a very uh, Fitzcarraldo kind of situation to get from... Well, certainly just to get to Brazil would have been quite a passage, but then up the Amazon, I mean, that's still quite an adventure. Sure. You know who else made bank were the steamboat companies and owners because uh, the steamboats carried the rubber up and down, but they also could function as as anything. Like a lot of the brothels were steamboats, for Uh example. uh So if you're interested in going into the import-export business and owning a brothel, all you needed was one steamboat. It It was super easy at the time. And you mentioned Fitzcarraldo, which is, abs- you know, the Werner Herzog movie. That's based on a real guy. There really was this Irish Spaniard Peruvian billionaire who realized if I could just drag a boat between this branch of this river to that branch of that river, I could get to all this unharvested rubber and make my millions. And famously, Herzog actually did make the natives drag a boat over this hill. Right. He didn't want to use models. He wanted to actually accomplish the feat. I want realism, John. There must <laughs> there must be realism. And I think to this day, it's a very controversial shoot because not all the Indians were fans. Right, right. But they were used to being enslaved and, and uh, exploited. Well, that's what's interesting. You know, a lot of these uncontacted tribes in the Amazon to this day, you know, previously we've put the Sentinelese in the omnibus, but there are borderline uncontacted tribes. There are a hundred in the, or more than a hundred in the world today. And many in the Amazon basin. But what's interesting is that a lot of these uncontacted tribes were the same ones that were victimized by the rubber barons back in the 1890s. So they resumed a state of uncontactedness. I don't know. Are you allowed to? Uh, are you allowed to retake up your virginity? I guess. I mean, I guess you go back and say, let's forget this uh, chapter in our in our histories and just. Well, that's what it was. They were exposed to progress, and progress was. L- Terrible. It was the literally the worst thing you could imagine. And when they could, they slipped off between the branches and found some quiet part of the forest and said, never again. Huh. And so that's why you have these uncontacted tribes. They're not just introverts or, or bad sports. Right, <laughs> right. They are, they're uh, like they're kind traumatized. of like Sentinelese. They've had contact and they want nothing to do with it. Yeah, they're, they're a, a walking PTSD tribe, basically. You know, they've, they've seen both versions and you know what? We're just going to stick with the loincloths and the poison darts. We're, we're good. So there's a, there's a crash in the rubber market, or at least the rubber market is now controlled by the British Empire, who's, you know, thank goodness for them. They're, uh, they're white man's burden out there uh, civilizing the world. But so what happens to these beautiful cities or these, these wonderful opera houses? Uh, Manaus still has an amazing opera house. Akito still has kind of a, a customs house made of wrought iron that, uh, in some accounts, Gustav Eiffel actually designed. Huh. I mean, these are still, these are still busy river towns today. 
because the Amazon River is still, you know, it's the world's longest river and, you know, it pours enough water into the Atlantic that it's fresh water for, you know, 10 or 20 miles out or whatever it is. Well, and my understanding um, is that this whole process then is what ended up connecting South America east to west, right? From the Bolivian side, they were also trying to harvest rubber and eventually somewhere up there in the Andes, they met at the headwaters and made some kind of truce. That is true. Um, you know what's interesting? This is on a different subject because it's millions of years before. But did you know that the Amazon used to run the other way? To the Pacific? Yeah, the Amazon used to run down into this this lowland trough before the, before the Andes rose up. The same process that was pushing up the Andes was, I guess, pushing down the other plate. So there was this giant rift valley running down the middle of South America. And the, and the Amazon would just run from the... Uh, from the Atlantic down into this river valley. It was essentially the same river, but the other way. Huh. Then the Andes get lifted up and the river, some, I mean, not one day, but it's fun to imagine that the Amazon suddenly one day just gets a little higher and somebody on a boat is like, whoa, 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 whoa we're going back. But, but there's a, there, there have been border disputes between Bolivia and Brazil, even into recent memory. Sure. Multiple wars have been fought over access to the Pacific and, you know, access to the access to the rubber and the riches of the Amazon. But also I think there were, I think there was a situation where Bolivia actually traded land with Brazil uh, because the Brazilians wanted the rubber, but the Bolivians wanted access to the railroads that were being built up the Amazon to speed transportation so that it wasn't dependent on the river. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and that is what sped the completion of the the Trans-South American Highway, which now runs that entire distance. Which is elsewhere in the omnibus. Bolivia is a sad case because it used to have access to the Pacific Ocean, and then it fought a, a, a tragic war with uh, Chile and Peru over mineral rights and got its butt kicked. <laughs> and got snipped out. And now Bolivia is landlocked. It's a sad story. Well, uh, so let me let me jump ahead a little bit. So there was a the market for rubber collapsed, but during World War II, rubber was like a major, major, not just worldwide commodity, but it was a strategic, it was a strategic resource. Sure. I mean, Japan was controlling more and more of those former plantations, and suddenly the Allies were seeing maybe 90% of the world's rubber supply shut off to them. And so there were rubber drives at home. People were dragging their old tires down to get turned into, I don't know, Jeep, yeah. Jeep tires or tag treads or whatever you well, need. Well, if you think about uh, if you think about World War II era war making technology, there's rubber everywhere. You've got your pilots, oxygen masks, and you've got your, yeah, Jeep tires, but also all the shock absorbers. And I mean, can you imagine all the little teeny rubber grommets that are in a battleship? The Admiral's probably got one of those little stress balls. Little stress balls. He's, he's squeezing that. He's going to need that. All of the erasers alone <laughs> in running a giant bureaucracy like the 1940s Pentagon, that would be, that you'd need a lot of rubber. If you add up all the eraser shavings lost during World War II, it's the size of Yeah, a, a rubber the ball the size, the size of the moon. <laughs> uh, well, and think also the Germans. I mean, they did a lot of writing and erasing and writing and erasing. Yeah, luckily they had they had plenty of history to erase towards the end of the war. <laughs> but luckily they had access to all of Japan's rubber, so it worked out for them. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. In a little bit before, in 1927, uh, Henry Ford decided uh, that he did not want to be at the mercy of these Southeast Asian rubber tycoons. Uh-huh. And so he decided he was going to create a vertical for the Ford Motor Company where he would have his own supply chain and he would make his own tires. And so back to Brazil. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt had just come back from the Amazon. He told Henry Ford, it's amazing down there. You got to go check it out. And Henry Ford was just delighted by this idea that he could start his own rubber plantation uh, back like it was in the boom days. Isn't there actually a town in South America called Fordatania or something? Very close, Fordlandia. <laughs> no. Fordlandia. Not really Fordlandia. He founds the little town of Fordlandia, which is hilarious because it's it's his idea of what a factory town should be. It's a little Midwestern village with a water tower in the middle, like you're in Peoria, Illinois right, or something. Ames, Iowa. Right, but it's plopped down in the middle of the jungle. It's it's the Dharma Project, essentially. <laughs> And so he, uh, you know, he tries to create this labor force and these rubber plantations out of this little town he makes, and it does not go well. Uh oh. Um, his his idea for the town is so fixed that he becomes very inflexible. You know, he doesn't allow alcohol. The employees don't like that. Weird to think that Henry Ford would be inflexible. <laughs> well, look at this. He had a specific menu he wanted all the people to eat. Uh-huh. It, it was very heavy on oatmeal. Corn. Whole wheat, canned peaches. <laughs> and people were not happy about this, although I don't know why. I mean... Canned oatmeal, peaches? Who doesn't like a canned peach? Put in some oatmeal and you got yourself a cobbler going. Right, You know, right. good to- good eating. I mean, vertical integration, was that a big part of the, the Ford Motor Company's success? I feel like he's inventing it right here. I mean, uh-huh. I can't think of any other cases where... Did Ford buy steel mills? I don't think he did. No. I mean, really, all he did was apply the interchangeable parts things from weapons manufacturer to a car and got very lucky. Well, and this is also, this ties in with our earlier program about lead additives in fuel, right? That was a General Motors project uh, as part of their desire to have a monopoly on the on fuel that reduced engine knocking. That's exactly, that's exactly true. I forgot about that, that they wanted to run gas stations too. Right. But it never happened, right? The car companies never ran gas stations? No, but they had, they had a, an interest and maybe even a controlling interest. It's funny to think about verticals that don't exist anymore. Like the movie studios used to own all the theaters. Yeah. In fact, here in Seattle, we had a lot of theaters that were purpose built by uh, studios in order to preview their films. That's why a lot of big cities have a Paramount theater like right. we do here in Seattle. It's United because, Artists. It's because that's where the Paramount Pictures sent their, sent their movies, but it doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, the people would grudgingly eat their peach cobbler, but the uh, it was a bridge too far when he switched to cafeteria-style dining, and that actually led to a big labor riot 
in Fordlandia. Hmm. But the real problem was, as you might imagine, planting a rubber plantation in Brazil doesn't work. And nobody apparently had told Henry Ford this. Oh, the leaf rot got him. All the caterpillars and the fungi, the South American leaf blight just killed all his rubber plants. And he had to shut the place down. Because he wasn't hearing it. People probably did tell him. And he was like, harumph. <laughs> you, you harumph, can't. he said. <laughs> no blight can affect Henry Ford. Tell that blight that Mr. Henry Ford is coming there in person. I don't, why does he talk like that? That's because so that's how everyone talked at the time. <laughs> was, he talk, was he talking into a, into a megaphone like, ah, like Rudy Valley? Automobile, automobile. <laughs> sure, you know, the mid-Atlantic accent. Um, so to this day, there are in the middle of the, of the Brazilian jungle, this little, uh, these rows and rows of American style bungalows and little red fire hydrants and the whole thing. Wow. But now they're covered in vines and the Ford logo is no longer visible. That's on, phenomenal. On you know, I've been tower. saying wow a lot in this program and it's because I'm, I'm learning an awful lot. I think you speak for the, our future listeners. When, yeah. when you say, wow, wow. That, you know, they, they really feel that. Yeah. That's probably a catchphrase in their culture. Sure. It's just like, uh, it's like the wild stallions, except instead of be excellent to each other, it's me saying, wow, in a sort of nonplussed fashion. All right, future listeners. Now's the time when the show kind of ends and you all sort of chant, wow, <laughs> wow, 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 over your omnibus altars. <laughs> Uh, so that's Henry Ford in 1925, but then the war years, I mean, I, I, I bring them back because in studying World War II, you really do see that South America is providing rubber and it becomes a real political, it's just as the Romanian oil fields were this contested area between the Soviet Union and the, and the Nazis, uh, Brazilian rubber played a big role in the war machine. And so there must have been, again, another rubber boom. Did these towns become reinvigorated by, the, by wartime industry? Yeah, these cities were resurrected during World War II. I don't know if it was like the good old Gilded Age, mm -hmm. but the money started to flow back because there was a massive government campaign. Uh, you know, the, uh, they called it the Battaglia de Boracha, uh -huh. the, the rubber battle. Wait, Boracha means rubber? I thought it meant drunk. Drunk rubber. A lot of these guys were probably drunk as well. So they were shipping in... The Battle of the Drunks. <laughs> they were shipping in workers from all over the country to, to you know, work the jungle to, to get all the rubber that the, the allies needed for the war effort. And it was, again, just a terrible lifestyle. Like 30,000 of these workers died huh. uh, in, the, in the war effort from malaria and... You know, animal attacks, snakes, pa uh, jaguars, scorpions, you know, it was <laughs> the snakes and jaguars. Can you imagine, you know, you're, what did daddy do in the war? Well, I kept getting attacked by jaguars and scorpions. I mean, that's sexier than, than anything you could do on a, on a beach in Europe. I get the feeling, though, if 30,000 workers died, it probably was more from unsanitary conditions than it was from jaguar attacks. Can you imagine how many jaguars it would take to kill 30,000 people? <laughs> they, they would have a route, just like the Serengero. Every day the jaguar gets up, walks through its 300 trees, kills 300 uh, Brazilian guys. No, I think you're right. It was, it was probably mostly malaria and other jungle diseases. And there was actually a generational thing where these rubber soldiers returned home after the war. You know, the few thousand survivors got to go home. And the idea was they would have a, a lifetime pension and so on. But, you know, it was, it's kind of like the post-Vietnam generation where they were scarred and it didn't all work out the way they'd been promised. Right. Well, so the 20th century problem of the Amazon is deforestation for 
cattle ranching and farming. A lot of this forest has, after synthetic rubber and rubber kind of stopped being such a cash crop, the deforestation came about as a result of kind of a land rush to produce beef cattle and other, and corn probably. It's always corn. But my understanding now is that there's a resurgence of craft rubber farming and the Brazilian government is using it as an environmental uh, program to discourage slash and burn farming techniques and saying to the residents, we will pay you to keep this land forested and to harvest rubber in small quantities. Um, and we're going to use it in craft products. Can you imagine these guys with their, you know, br little Brooklyn hipster mustaches going out there to, to collect their craft rubber, like dipping in a pinky and being like, oh, it's pretty good. Well, so there's a, there's a company called Natex, uh, which is the only company in the world that makes condoms from wild rubber. <laughs> and as it passed through the intestines of a civet. <laughs> That's, that's the only thing I want on me. So it, currently Natex is paying, it's kind of like the coffee companies that have sustainable coffee culture where they pay these individual um, Juan Valdezes to produce organic coffee for them instead of paying these big coffee corporations. Right. Uh, Natex now is paying individual families, like there are 700 families making this artisanal rubber. Do they have to go home and like spin the latex onto something of the appropriate shape to make the condom and then mail it to you? I think no. And I think right now, at least the government of Brazil buys the entire production of Natex condoms, wild rubber condoms as part of their anti AIDS program in Brazil. So there's this business potential to grow this kind of environmental, sustainable uh, agriculture, uh, somebody could go in there, grab some quantity of this, of this raw rubber and bring it to the, bring it to America and to Europe as a kind of more expensive, locally sourced, organic Condom. Shade grown condoms. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a product where I would care less about the artisanality of it, you know? Well I feel like with birth control you mostly want reliability. I'm not sure. If you think about if you think about the twirly mustache crowd, I mean they will buy anything if you put uh sustainable on it. And they'll pay <laughs> twice the price. But Natex makes a hundred million condoms a year out of this quantity of of raw rubber. And so it doesn't seem like that would be a very difficult business opportunity. I hope somebody, I hope some future Teddy Roosevelt uh, goes down on an expedition and, and uh, exploits it'll, it'll, this resource. It'll be Donald Trump after the White House. He'll come up to somebody and be like, you know what I saw when I was in the jungle? Sustainable <laughs> condoms, as far as the eye can see. But it's actually working as a program to limit the deforestation of this, like way up the river, kind of the last like fully protected conservation areas, this, the land where the uncontacted live. So even if the condoms never get used, it's good for acres and acres of, of rainforest. Yeah. Because the, because weaning themselves off of a beef cattle economy, they're trying to find all this, uh, all this other stuff. And I think the acacia berry 
Am I pronouncing that right? The, a Kai berry? The Kai berry, is that what it's called? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not insufferable, John. I think that's another that's another thing that they can kind of grow in this. Um, Something they can trick Americans into buying, basically. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying all that stuff. Beekeeping and fish farming and all these little cottage industries that are uh, where they're trying to keep the forest from getting chopped. It's out. Walden Pond up there now, basically. Well, if the condoms never get bought, that means the future leaks probably there's some underground cache of, uh, of locally sourced shade grown condoms, you know, a massive vault of them somewhere, but I hope you don't find it. I want you to repopulate the earth, my friends. A massive vault of artisanal condoms. I love that it's the Eepsteros getting rich instead of these terrible hundred dollar bill lighting fat cats. Good for them. The right, the right people won, I think, in the rubber boom. And that concludes Rubber Barons. Entry 1087.EZ1613. Certificate number 25284 in the omnibus. Future listeners, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, we can be found across all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also maintained an Instagram account under my name. Our address for email, uh, which was a form of rubber. Email was a form of rubber? Our email was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, we speak to you from your distant past. And obviously, we, unlike you, have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that no cataclysm awaits us today, at least, that we may survive another week, another month, another year. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like every recording we make, could be our final word to you. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>